Tonight we begin in Philippians chapter 2, and we're only going to cover the first 11 verses, but you'll find out before, we're end, before we finish tonight that that's plenty enough to cover. This is one of the most amazing and deep and profound passages of all of Paul's letters, and perhaps we should say of all the New Testament. But it's important for us to understand the context. The last time we were together in Philippians chapter 1, we saw how Paul wrote with great affection and familiarity with this group of believers in Philippi. He loved them and they loved him. There was a close relationship and working together. And Paul prayed for them and he wanted to see God do a work in them. And he tried to explain to them that his present imprisonment, because Paul was in Roman custody at the time that he wrote this, in the city of Rome or near the city of Rome, awaiting trial before Caesar, and how God actually was working out a great and wonderful plan, even from his present imprisonment. And Paul told the Philippians that um, it didn't even matter to him whether he lived or whether he died in this imprisonment, that God could be glorified either way. And he gave that great statement, to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he was explaining his heart and his mind to the Philippians. And then towards the end of the chapter, he, he sort of threw out something that I just want to call notice to again. It's in chapter 1, verse 27. He says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you, or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit. In other words, Paul said, I just want you to act in such a way so that when I come and see you, if I am in fact able to come and see you, if I am released from this imprisonment, I want to be able to come and visit you and see that you're standing together in one spirit. Now that's a very subtle clue to a problem that appeared to be present among the Philippians. And the problem was, they had a lack of unity. My guess, and it's really nothing more than a guess, it's just sort of the feel I have from the passage, is that it wasn't severe among the Philippians yet. It's not like this was a congregation split by great divisions, as, for example, was the Corinthian church, where one party was after Paul, and another group was after Apollos, and another group said they're uh, after Peter, and then a fourth more spiritual than them all group said, well, we're the Jesus group, and you know how they're battling back and forth. That's the picture you have of the church at Corinth. I, I think that the division that the splits, that the attacks upon the unity of the body in Philippi were just beginning. They were real. They were dangerous. But apparently, when this man who was sent by the church at Philippi named Epaphroditus, we'll learn more about him next week, he came to visit Paul when Paul was in Roman custody, there imprisoned in Rome, and he told Paul, maybe it slipped out of his mouth, you know, maybe he made an off comment and Paul followed up on it, but he, he knew that there was some kind of division, some kind of friction within the body at Philippi. So now, beginning at chapter 2, Paul is going to begin to speak to that. And it's very important that you understand this context, because before we're done tonight, we're going to examine one of the most theologically profound passages in the entire New Testament. But I want you to see that it's theological profundity, if I can use such a word. Its theological depth was not given as a lesson in systematic theology. It's useful as a lesson in systematic theology, but it was given for a very practical purpose among the Philippian believers. So, verse 1, chapter 2. 
Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, okay, so Paul, by using the word therefore in the first verse there, he's drawing back to what he built on in the previous passage in Philippians, telling the Philippians how to stand strong for the Lord against conflicts that would come to them from the outside and now perhaps among conflicts that would come to them from the inside. And he says, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, I want you to understand, here Paul is introducing the basis for his exhortation to unity, humility, and love among believers. He's saying, Philippian Christians, you have experienced certain things in your Christian life. You have experienced consolation in Christ. You have experienced comfort of love. You have experienced fellowship of the Spirit. You have experienced affection and mercy. Now, in light of this Christian heritage and experience that you have, I'm going to ask you to do some certain things. I love how Paul puts it there. He puts it in a way that assumes these Philippian Christians have experienced these things. And I wonder, I wonder how many Christians there are out there who really have not had an experience, or maybe I should say have not had a recent experience of the consolation of Christ. What a beautiful thing it is to have Jesus console you, to have Jesus come and comfort you and strengthen you and give you the everlasting consolation. There is consolation in Christ, and Christians should know it. I love something that Spurgeon said about this. He said, the Holy Spirit consoles, but Christ is the consolation. If I may use the figure, the Holy Spirit is the physician, but Christ is the medicine. He becomes our consolation. Then he says, if there is any comfort of love. That's the second rhetorical question that Paul has. And of course, there should be comfort of love among believers. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says that God is the God of all comfort. There is no circumstance in which God cannot comfort us. But it's more than just comfort. It's the comfort of love. It's the way that he strengthens us and makes us strong. The idea of comfort here is not so much, might I say with this without being misunderstood, it's not so much a motherly comfort, you know, that picks up the child and cradles it in its arms and soothes the crying. It's more of a manly comfort that says, come, let me stand beside you and strengthen you in the job. This comfort of love. You know, we should know this comfort of love in our experience, right? It's, it's a checklist, perhaps, for you to examine. Have I recently experienced the consolation of Christ? Have I recently experienced the comfort of love? And then he says, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit. That's the third rhetorical question. Fellowship, of course, using that great ancient Greek word koinonia, which means the sharing of things in common. We share life with the Spirit of God that we never knew before. The Holy Spirit fills and guides and moves in our life in a very powerful and in a precious way. There is fellowship in the Spirit, and Christians should know it. And then finally, in verse 1, he mentions, if there's any affection and mercy. Well, we should know these things in our Christian life. We should have an ongoing, continual experience of these things. Every one of us should be able to register in our mind some recent time when we've experienced these things from the Spirit of God. Now, I want you to notice, though, each one of these gifts, consolation in Christ, comfort of love, fellowship of the Spirit, affection and mercy, every one of those are communicated to us both 
in a direct spiritual way from Jesus and also from Jesus through his people. Isn't it funny how somebody might say, well, you know, um, I want the comfort of love from Jesus, uh, so I'm just going to wait for Jesus to do it. And, and, and the Lord sends brother or sister to them to bring them the comfort of love. And they say, well, no, I'm waiting to get it from Jesus. And Jesus is saying, well, I'm sending it to you through this brother or sister. And, and so it's true that these things may be communicated to us on a supernatural level, just through our own communion with Jesus Christ, but he may very well choose to send you these, thing, these things through another member of his body, that is another brother or sister in Jesus Christ. Okay, so we understand the idea here of verse 1. Paul is saying that because of this great common experience, this great beautiful fellowship that we have in the Christian life, now in verse 2 we're really beginning to get into it here. Look at it here, verses 2, 3, and 4. He says, therefore, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, don't you regard it as revealing that Paul would say this? He's saying this for a reason, right? That some news has reached his ears, probably from the messenger Epaphroditus, that there was a need for this exhortation among the Philippians. There was some friction, some conflict, some threat to the unity of the body. And he says, please, Philippians, fulfill my joy. I'm making a personal request to you. Please fulfill my joy. Make the founding apostle of your church happy by being like-minded, having the same love being of one accord, of one mind. Isn't he basically repeating himself over and over again? I mean, it's the same idea, repeated again. He is appealing for a deep, abiding, internal unity among the Philippians. So please keep this in mind. The unity is the goal. What Paul is going to explain in the rest of verses 2, 3, and 4 are the descriptions of how to achieve and practice the unity here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. In other words, if somebody were to say, how can I have unity in a church body? How can I have unity among a group of Christians? Here it is right here. And and when you read about it, you'll, you'll have your eyes open. You'll say, of course. If believers would do this, there would absolutely be unity. Anytime there's not unity, there's a lack of this. So what is it? Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Isn't that beautiful? Anytime there's disunity among Christians, there's, there's in some, somebody's not doing this. Maybe everybody's not doing it. Maybe a few people aren't doing it. I don't know. But somebody's not doing this. And the first thing he mentions there is, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Now, In the flesh, we are often motivated by selfish ambition or conceit. Much of what we do is not done out of love for others, but out of our own desire for advancement or promotion. What Paul calls here selfish ambition. I want you to notice something here. Paul found it important to say selfish ambition. Not all ambition is selfish ambition. I believe that there's a such thing as a good ambition. 
I believe there's a such thing as a godly ambition that wants to achieve and wants to work and wants to conquer things for the kingdom of God and for the glory of Jesus Christ. I think it's very important that Paul said selfish ambition. To hear some Christians talk, you would think that the ideal Christian state doesn't want to do anything. It has no ambition whatsoever. No, 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 no. I think Paul himself was a very ambitious man. He was a man that, that his missionary dra- travels, his diligence to preach the gospel, his, his lack of discouragement in the face of persecution, it shows us again and again, this was a man who was ambitious, but it was not selfish ambition. And then he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Let nothing be done through conceit. Do you know what conceit is? Conceit is thinking too highly of oneself. It's having an excessive self-interest and self-preoccupation. It could be more literally translated, empty glory. It's when you think too favorably of yourself and when you think too much of yourself. Now, when you have conceit, or when there is conceit among a group of Christians, that will work among, uh, excuse me, that will work against the unity that God wants to have among those believers. So, nothing through selfish ambition, nothing through conceit, but then he says, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. This is the third step. First, you put away selfish ambition. Secondly, you put away conceit. And then you say, in lowliness of mind, I'm going to esteem or think of others better than myself. Again, this is an attitude that is completely contradictory to both the world, the flesh, and the devil. I love that phrase that Paul uses, lowliness of mind. You know, the ancient Greeks had this word in their vocabulary. They considered it to be a fault and not a virtue. When they saw somebody with lowliness of mind, they said, what a loser. Boy, he's lowly. The, the, the pagan and the secular idea of manhood was to be very self-assertive, to impose your will upon other people. And in the secular mind in the ancient world and today, when you stooped to serve somebody, the only reason you did it was because you had to. Here, Paul's saying, willingly bend down to serve others. You see, in pagan writers, this world, lowliest in the mind, generally had a bad meaning. But when it came into the New Testament, it had a noble meaning. So Paul says, have this lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. I just think it's wonderful. You know, the Bible knows nothing of this idea that we should carry with us into every situation an attitude of confident superiority. You know, yeah, I'm the best one around here. I'm the best one in the room or whatever. The Bible says, no, no, no. You should esteem others better than yourselves. You know, I think if you esteem others better than yourself, you're going to very naturally have a concern for their needs and concerns. It's looking outwardly. You see, every one of these things is a rejection of self, and it's a focus upon other people. One of the most beautiful and, I think, profound and simple descriptions of Jesus that I've ever heard is to say that he was a ultimately others-centered person. Jesus was centered on other people, not upon himself. Well, that's a description right here. Selfish ambition, gone. I'm others-centered. Conceit, it's gone. I'm others-centered. Esteeming others better than myself, I'm happy to. 
Uh, In lowliness of mind, of course, because I'm other-centered, not self-centered. And when people do this in the body of Christ, something very powerful happens. You see, if I consider you above me, and if you consider me above you, then a very beautiful thing happens in the Christian community. You have a community where everybody is looked up to, and no one is looked down upon. Isn't that what we want? And Paul says beautifully and straightforwardly painting the prescription for it right here. Finally finishing here in verse 4 with this idea, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. You see, as we put away our selfish ambition, as we put away our conceit and our tendencies to be high-minded and self-absorbed, we're naturally going to have a greater concern for the interests and the needs of others. Now, by the way, I want to point out, and I hope I'm not cutting it too finely here, but I would want to point out that Paul doesn't say that it's wrong to look out for your own interests. What he said is it's wrong to only look out for your own interests. And isn't that where we often are? Well, look, you'll quite naturally look out after your own interests. You will. The thing is, is you need to add to that a looking out for the interests of others. Now, when we read this, I mean, to to think of a community of people living this way together, it's heaven on earth, isn't it? It's beautiful. It's koinonia. It's love. It's unity. It's fellowship. And we say, this is beautiful. I I wish it could be this way. And and now Paul is going to talk to us about how we can have this in our life and what we can set before us as the guide and the inspiration for it. But again, I want to make sure before we jump into verse 5, which begins this amazing theological passage, that you understand the context of Paul promoting unity among the Philippian believers. Now, when we begin here in verse 5, you need to understand that many people regard Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, as perhaps even being a hymn that the early church incorporated, uh, a hymn of the early church that Paul incorporated into this letter. Some commentators go so far as to suggest stanza and verse arrangements for this hymn. It's possible, but it's not a necessary conclusion. Paul was capable of very inspired poetic writing. And because this section is so poetic, some people assume it had to be a song, but not necessarily. You see, for reasons that we're going to examine in just a little bit, this passage is often known as the kenosis passage. And we'll talk about why. So here, Paul's going to begin at verse 5. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard this principle of teaching, is that, you know, whenever you're presenting a biblical principle, you, you, you need to apply it to people's lives, right? Okay, here's the principle, and then here's the application. I want you to know Paul sort of turns this around right here. You know what he does in verse 5? He applies the message. He applies it, and then he's going to give the message. So first, let's look at the application. It's in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. See how beautifully it flows? You see, if there was anyone who knew how to walk in in lowliness of mind, it was Jesus. If there was anybody who knew how to put away selfish ambition and conceit, it was Jesus. If there was anybody who, who knew how to esteem others better than himself, it was Jesus. And so considering all that, he's saying, okay, well then let this mind that was in Christ Jesus be in you. And I'm going to tell you more about that mind now, beginning at verse 6. You see, Paul is going to, in wonderful detail, detail, describe for us the mind of Jesus. But before he tells us about the mind of Jesus, he's telling you what to do with the information. You have to internalize it. 
Now, he's not telling us everything about the mind of Christ. Instead, he's selecting out what's necessary for the Philippians to understand to promote this idea of fellowship and unity among them. And then he says, let this mind be in you. As we get into this beautiful passage, it's all too easy for us to read the following description of Jesus and to admire it from a distance. But God wants us to be awed by it, I believe, but he also wants us to see it as something that we must enter into and imitate. Let this mind means that it's something that you have a choice about, doesn't it? Let this mind be in you. You you can let it be in you or you can let it not be in you. Paul says there's a choice that you're going to need to make in your own Christian life about this. I would emphasize, though, if you want to compare this to another passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, tells us that we have the mind of Christ. I believe there's a sense in which the mind of Christ is given to us as believers. It's part of our birthright, right? I mean, Christ is within us. The Spirit of God is within us. Yet, it's as if the mind of Christ is given to us, but we have the choice as to whether or not we will walk in it. We have the choice as to whether or not we will let the mind of Christ dominate our thinking and our choices. And this is what Paul is encouraging them to do. So let me read now, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to read verses 5 through 11, and then we'll go back and just start looking at it piece by piece. Let this mind be in you, which was in, also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Okay, well, what is the mind that was in Christ Jesus? Verse 6, first, who being in the form of God. Here Paul is describing the pre-incarnate existence of Jesus Christ. I'm sure every one of you are familiar for this, but let me just explain, just, just so that we're all on the same page about this. Jesus Christ existed before he was ever born as a baby in Bethlehem. Jesus Christ existed before he was ever a fertilized egg in the womb of Mary as she lived in Nazareth. Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. He is God the Son. The Bible tells us that there is God the Father, that there is God the Son, and that there is God the Holy Spirit. And these God... God, in this way, is three persons in one God, in some incomprehensible and glorious way. And the three members of the Godhead in one God have existed from all eternity. So, the Son of God, or God the Son, existed before time began. So, he was in the form of God. I want you to understand this. It says, being in the form of God... That word form is very important because some people might take it to say that Jesus wasn't actually God, but that he was in the form of God. 
you understand how somebody might think that way? I mean, that's a common way to use it in English usage. You know, uh, it wasn't uh, an actual automobile, but it was in the form of an automobile. It wasn't actually a human being, but it was a mannequin in the form of a human being. Okay, we must put that idea out of our mind because that is not what the ancient Greek word for form means. The ancient Greek word morphe means a form which truly and fully expresses the being that lies underneath it. The word means this, the being equal to God. You see, it's as if Paul said this, God has a form and Jesus Christ exists in the form of God. It's sort of a difficult word to translate for some reasons, but make no mistake about it. Sometimes when we use the word form, we mean something that has a appearance that is different from its actual nature, right? It has the appearance of a man, but it's actually a mannequin. This Greek word means something that has an outward appearance that is exactly corresponding to its inward reality. So being in the form of God is actually a very powerful statement of the deity of Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now again, we have to consider what is the idea behind this phrase, did not consider it robbery. The ancient Greek phrase has the idea of something being grasped or clung to. In other words, Jesus, though he was God, did not consider it important to cling to the prerogatives or the privileges of deity. One Greek commentator says this, that the ancient Greek word translated robbery really means a treasure to be clutched and retained at all hazards. So Jesus said, no, I'm not going to hold on to the privileges and the prerogatives of deity I will let go of them, even though it's a great treasure, I will let go of them. And we think of God the Son living in the ivory palaces of heaven, surrounded by adoring angels, in the power and the glory of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, three in one in some expressible, glorious unity, living with, again, all the glory and the splendor of heaven around him, saying, I will let go of this treasure. I do not consider it robbery to be equal with God. I'll let go of this. Now, please notice, it wasn't that Jesus was trying to achieve equality with the Father. He had it. What he chose was to not cling to the equality with the Father. He had uh, the, the, the same worship that was extended to God the Father in heaven was extended to the Son. The the angels worshipped them the same. The angels honored them the same. In the same glory, in the same splendor. And Jesus said, I will let go of this. It is a treasure that I will release from my grasp. And how did he do that? How did he release from his grasp the glorious treasure of the privilege and the prerogative of deity? It says so right here in verse 7. But made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now, the more common and sometimes more well-known translation of this phrase, but made himself of no reputation, is actually he 
emptied himself. And this comes from the ancient Greek word that is translated emptied, which is kenosis. And that's why sometimes this is called the kenosis passage, the emptying passage. And sometimes people teach on the basis of this passage that Jesus's incarnation was essentially a self-emptying. That here was this being in heaven, the, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, and what he did was he emptied himself of his, of his deity and he came to earth as a man. Now, I want you to know that there was certainly and undeniably a sense in which God emptied himself, God the Son did. But to overemphasize this contradicts the rest of Scripture. You see, you want to carefully think about what Jesus emptied himself of. Now, Paul is going to tell us what he emptied himself very plainly in the following verses. But we need to take care that we do not think that Jesus emptied himself of his deity in any way. Now, I don't mean to get into the intricacies of systematic theology of this, but some people develop what is known as the canonic theory of the incarnation to the point where they insist that Jesus let go of many of the attributes of deity, that he was no longer omniscient, that he was no longer omnipotent, that that he even suffered the elimination of his own divine self-consciousness, that Jesus didn't even know he was God. He emptied himself of it all. But you need to understand, Jesus did not and could not become less God in the incarnation. Jesus emptied himself. But it wasn't that deity was subtracted from himself. Rather, he let go not of deity itself, but of the privileges and the prerogatives of deity. Think in your mind of a king, right? Here's the king of a country. Think of a medieval king, right? There's his crown, there's his robe, you know, here's his scepter, and he's the king, and everybody bows down to him, and he's king, king, whatever you want to call him. He's the king of his country. And that king says, one day I want to live as a common man. And so I'm going to take off my robes. I'm going to take off my crown. I'm going to let go of my scepter. And I'm going to dress in the clothes of a common farmer. And I'm going to walk through my country. And there's even wonderful tales of kings doing this sort of thing. I don't know if it's ever happened, actually, except in the case of Jesus Christ by analogy. But, you know, there's stories of this. Now, all the time that the king has let go of the prerogatives and the privileges of a deity, all the time he's walking around through the village as a common farmer, does anybody bow down to him? Does anybody take off their cloak and put it over the mud puddle as they would if he was walking around in his royal robes? Does he have bodyguards and soldiers? Do people shout out, long live the king? Are officials trying to shake his hand and greet him and do all these things? No, he has let go of all the prerogatives, of all the privileges of being a king. But let me ask you a question. Has he let go of being the king? No. No, he's let go of the privileges. But still, he is the highest sovereign in the land. He has not let go of being a king but he's let go of the privileges and the prerogatives of the throne. That is what Jesus did. You see, he had equality of nature. He had an equality of rights, but he let go of those rights. And as it says, he made himself of no reputation. And might I say, this letting go, this this emptying himself of the privileges and the prerogatives of deity, it was absolutely free. Nobody made him do it. Sometimes people get the mistaken idea in their mind that there was sort of this vote in heaven. You know, when the Father and the Holy Spirit voted two to one against the Son that he had to go down and do these things. It's nonsense. 
No, I want you to see how the Son of the Highest can, at his own pleasure, he can show his glorious presence or he can eclipse his glorious presence. You know what I think is one of the most beautiful events in the entire Gospels? It's the transfiguration, right? There's Jesus with his disciples. By the way, an important event in the Gospels. It's one of the few events in the three-year ministry of Jesus that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. And there's Jesus in his transfiguration. And it says that his face became as shining as the sun and his clothes became so white, whiter than any laundry on earth could make him. And the people couldn't even, the disciples couldn't even look at him. And a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. And it's just an amazing incident. Now, some people think it was a great miracle for Jesus to display himself in that way. I don't think so. I think the miracle was that he held the glory in most of the time. Jesus was just sort of showing everybody, this is how I really am. Most of the time I hide it. Most of the time by a deliberate act of my will, I hold it in. But no, I'm emptying myself. And I'm glad he showed us that incident when he didn't empty himself for that afternoon of the transfiguration. When he said, this is, these are the prerogatives, these are the privileges of deity that I can take any time. I, I haven't divorced myself from I've willingly let them go and I could take them back at any moment. You know, you find these amazing statements of Jesus during his earthly ministry. You find these statements of Jesus when he says, you know, don't you know that I could call all the angels of heaven to come and defend me? And you know, the angels would have loved to do it. But he would not draw on his divine prerogative. No, he lived as a man. He lived as a man filled with the Holy Spirit, laying aside, becoming of no reputation. And then if you could go, there you go, you go from the ivory palaces of heaven to come as a man and to come as no reputation, to, to empty yourself. And then take a look. There's another rung down on the ladder there, taking the form of a bondservant. And Jesus, it's enough for you to come as a... Jesus, couldn't you come to earth as a king? Couldn't you come to earth as a rich man or a lord? No, he came as a bondservant. This describes how Jesus emptied himself. He took the form of a bondservant. He didn't empty himself of his deity or any of his attributes or of his inequality of God. He emptied himself into the form of a bondservant, not merely the form of a man. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. You see, we can think of someone who is a servant, but not in the likeness of men. Angels are servants, aren't they? The Bible says that angels are ministering servants, sent forth to, to minister on behalf of those who will inherit salvation. Angels are servants, but they're not in the likeness of men. You know, when people have angel encounters in the Bible, what is the first thing that the angel invariably has to say? Don't be afraid. Because there's something awesome and glorious. Oh, angels are servants, but they're not in the likeness of men. Aladdin's genie, right? That old story, right? That fairy tale. Aladdin's genie, he was a servant but not in the likeness of men. No, Jesus came as a bondservant and he came in the likeness of men. And it was a real likeness. It wasn't just a shell. It wasn't just a form. It was a real image of man. What happened was this glorious second person of the Trinity, God the Son, added humanity unto his deity, coming in the likeness of men. And then verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, another rung down the ladder. He humbled himself, another rung down the ladder, and became obedient to the point of death, another rung down the ladder, even the death of the cross. And now you've gone as low as you can go on the ladder of humiliation. 
You see, it says that he humbled himself and became obedient. I want you to notice that there was a connection between the two. You see, obedience. Obedience was something that Jesus could only experience when he came down from the throne of heaven and became a man. When God sits enthroned in heaven's glory, there's no one he obeys. There's God the Son, the second member of the Trinity. And again, as I've said before, because the Psalms use that glorious phrase, in the ivory palaces of heaven. There he is. Who does he obey in the glory of heaven? Nobody. He obeys no one. I mean, everybody obeys him. But you see, Jesus had to leave heaven's glory and be found in appearance as a man in order to become obedient. And one key to Jesus' obedience on earth was the endurance of suffering. Again, this was something that he could only learn by experience after the incarnation. How does God in the, heaven, in the glory of heaven suffer? He doesn't. There's no suffering in heaven. But yet, to become obedient, to endure suffering, he had to add humanity to his deity. And as it says here, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient. As it's written in Hebrews 5.8, though he was a son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And so indeed, as it says there in verse 8, he humbled himself. He was humble in that he took the form of a man and not a more glorious creature like an angel. He was humble in that he was born into an obscure, oppressed place. He was humble in that he was born into poverty among a despised people. He was humble in that he was born as a child instead of appearing as a man. He was humble in submitting to the obedience of a child in a household. He was humble in learning and practicing a trade and a humble trade of a builder. He was humble in the long wait until he launched out into his public ministry. He was humble in the companions and the disciples that he chose. He was humble in the audience that he appealed to and in the way that he taught. He was humble in the temptations that he allowed and that he endured. He was humble in the weakness, hunger, thirst, and tiredness that he endured. He was humble in his total obedience to his heavenly father. He was humble in his submission to the Holy Spirit. He was humble in so choosing and submitting to the death on the cross. He was humble in the agony of his death. He was humble in the shame, the mocking, and the public humiliation of his death. And he was humble in enduring the spiritual agony of his sacrifice on the cross. He humbled himself. You know, when I think about these things, maybe I think crazy thoughts. But I think in theory, it would have been possible for the Son of God to become a man and pay for the sins of the world without this great humiliation. Right? I mean, why couldn't couldn't the Son of God have added the humanity of a 33-year-old man to his deity? Now listen, there's nothing more humiliating than childhood in those teenage years, and Jesus could have avoided it all. He could have avoided all the chores that he had to do around the house. All the little humiliations of household obedience. Jesus endured them all. Why? I can't see that that was directly, absolutely necessary to the plan of salvation. No, no, no. He could have come and just merely come adding the humanity of a 33-year-old man to his deity. And he might have appeared before man only in his transfigured glory. You know, there is, when Jesus was transfigured before the disciples, did he stop being a man? No, he was a man full of the glory of God. And he could have appeared like that all the time if he so chose. 
And he might have taught men what they needed to hear, uh, you know, from that authoritative, booming voice from heaven. And then he might have suffered for the sins of man in a hidden place on the earth, far from the eyes of man. Or he might have suffered for man and, and sacrificed for their sins on the dark side of the moon, for that matter. Would his sacrifice would have been any less precious if it would have happened in secret and God only told us that it happened? No, instead, he did not. He humbled himself. I think about the humbleness of Jesus. I think about his humiliation. I think of his humiliation on the cross. I think of Jesus hanging on the cross and being mocked by his bitterest enemies. Of them laughing at the suffering Jesus bleeding and dying for our sins. And it's bad enough, the excruciating pain that he suffers, and in that awesome and and, and incomprehensible exchange where, where God the Father poured out his wrath upon God the Son, all the wrath that we sinners deserve, and he bore it within himself. I think of all that, and while he's suffering that to whatever immeasurable degree that suffering was, men, his enemies, were laughing at him. He saved others. He can't save himself. And there he was in naked humiliation being laughed at on the cross. I don't know why that humiliation was absolutely necessary to pay for our sins. Isn't it funny? God never humiliated a sacrificial animal in the Old Testament system of sacrifice the way that he allowed his own son to be humiliated. But no, he did it to show us the depths of this. Might I say this, and I, 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 please don't take this in a wrong way. I don't mean this in a trite or trivial way, but I hope you'll connect with what I'm trying to say here. Jesus did that so that the Philippians would help solve their unity problem. Isn't that true? Didn't he undergo that kind of humiliation on the cross and that sort of depth, taking every step down in the rung of that ladder from heaven down to the depths of humiliation? Either He did it in part so that we would get along. You know, I didn't mean only the Philippians. I meant you and I. That we would have the mind of Christ and and in lowliness of mind, treat one another and without selfish ambition or conceit and all the rest that Paul has already talked about. But no, Jesus did it. He did it to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's the bottom rack rung in the ladder from the throne of God. Jesus came all the way down to the most despised death of all. And I could go into the details, but you probably know. Crucifixion was such a shameful death that it was not permitted for Roman citizens. By the way, you should know, the city of Philippi had a special status. It was a Roman colony. Every citizen of the city of Philippi was a Roman citizen because it was a special Roman colony. The people of Philippi could not be crucified. It was against the law. It was a shame to crucify uh, anybody. And it was absolutely unthinkable that you would execute a Roman citizen by crucifixion. No, a victim of crucifixion was also considered by the Jews to be particularly cursed by God. This is how far Jesus went on the ladder that extended from the throne room of heaven all the way down to the death of the cross. And so when it says, even to the death of the cross, it shows that there's no limit to what God will do to demonstrate his love and saving power for man. This was and forever will be the ultimate. And I have to say, I have to say, when I think about this, and when I think about the greatness of Jesus' sacrifice, 
it makes me more confident in saying that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. That is, he himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, some people think that that's too narrow. That God should have provided more than one way. That, that it's very narrow of God to say, for Jesus to say, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And that actually God, God should have many different ways and many different faiths and among many different ways that there should just be many different ways to God and Jesus is just one of them. Then please, if that's what you think, then you go to Jesus and you look at him dying and bleeding on the cross. You look at him at that lowest rung of the ladder that began up in the heights of heaven and descended down all the way into the lowest place to the depths of the death of the cross. You look at Jesus hanging on the cross and you say, man, God, that's great. But you know, you really should do more. That's a nice start in providing a way for man to come to God. But uh, you know what? Let's do a few more things. Can't you hear the voice of God from heaven saying, there is no greater thing I can do. What I have done here with Jesus Christ on the cross, it's the ultimate. That There is nothing greater than I can do. And the greatness of my sacrifice is that invite all people all over the world, of every language, of every tribe, of every tongue, I invite them all to come and trust in this great work that I have done. But to look at that work and to say that more should be done, that God didn't do enough at the cross? I can't bear the thought. The thought is incomprehensible to us. And so it was the death of the cross. All of this was the great display of the power of Jesus, the death of the cross. And because of that, because of that we should praise him. Charles Spurgeon said of this, the lower he stoops to save us, the higher we ought to lift him in our adoring reverence. Blessed be his name. He stoops and stoops and stoops. And when he reaches our level and becomes a man, he still stoops and stoops and stoops lower and deeper yet. So what should we do? We should lift him high in our praises. Now I want you to know that there's practical application from what we study here tonight. We'll talk about this, the whole emphasis on unity that Paul is very obviously doing. But might I draw another practical application? Here's about as practical as you can get when you talk about this glorious passage. It's practical for you to get down on your knees and adore God. It's practical for you to lift him up higher than he ever stooped. It's just fitting. And so... He says, even the death of the cross, Jesus Christ showed his greatness, his power. I want to remind you something about the Philippians and their situation. We talked about this the last time we were together in Philippians 1, but it's worthy of repeating and looking at again. Remember when Paul was among the Philippians, there was a great display of God's power there, wasn't there? Do you remember what happened when Paul was in the Philippian jail? A great display of power, an earthquake from God. And not just an earthquake, a miraculous earthquake, because there's no reason why all the chains should drop off of Paul and Silas just because an earthquake came, right? So earthquake came, all their chains fell off, and they were able to escape. I mean, this was an amazing... you got to say, that's one of the really great ones of the book of Acts, right? A great miracle, great display of power. And, and you wouldn't blame the Philippians for saying, well, yeah, God's a God of power. Look, he, he released Paul from jail. And now they look at Paul stuck in jail in Rome, and they go, hmm, where's the power, Paul? So Paul points them back to the crucified Jesus. Hey, that's power. Isn't that power? 
Don't, don't forget that power, Philippian brothers and sisters. You see, the Philippians, and I suppose us as well, were tempted to think of God's power as only being expressed in exaltation and deliverance from every power, from every problem, but not in terms of glorifying God through humble service and endurance. Paul says, no, 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 the power of God is just as real. So now into verse 9. It's beautiful. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Therefore God has also highly exalted him. I love those words, highly exalted. You know how you could translate it from the ancient Greek? You could actually translate it super exalted. God has super duper exalted him or exalted him with all exaltation. I think it's beautiful. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him. Do you notice what it's saying there? When it says God in verse 9, you understand what that means, right? God the Father. Even after his wonderful sacrifice and resurrection, Jesus Christ did not exalt himself. He let the Father do it. Christ did not crown himself, but the Father crowned him. He didn't elevate himself to the throne of majesty. No, it was God the Father that said, you've done it, son, here, you've you've done it. Now come into your exaltation. He placed him upon that throne. And it says, he's given him the name which is above every name. I love that. You know, through my years, and especially I would say in my early years as a Christian, I love to debate with people about these great doctrines, such as I love to debate, for example, with Jehovah's Witnesses about the deity of Jesus Christ. And when I found this passage, I just found it just beautiful to be able to say to a Jehovah's Witness, Dear Mr. or Mrs. Jehovah's Witness, what is the name that is above every name? And they absolutely know what the name is that is above every name. It's the name Jehovah, right? We would say Yahweh. Actually, it's more uh, biblically correct. We would say to say Yahweh. Jehovah is actually an old and, and somewhat incorrect pronunciation, but we won't quibble about that. If you want to say Jehovah instead of Yahweh, that's okay. We understand that you're talking about the Tetragrammaton from the Old Testament that's translated Lord in those small capital letters in most Bibles. Okay, we understand the name that is above every name is Jehovah or Yahweh. Well, isn't it beautiful to see that God has exalted Jesus and given Jesus the name which is above every name? Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is Jehovah. It's beautiful. This verse, with this very clear statement of Jesus' deity, I tell you, whatever the highest name is in all the universe, if you want to say Jehovah, if you want to say Yahweh, if you want to say the name, whatever you want to say, that name belongs to Jesus Christ. Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus has that name. And so therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, not only is Jesus exalted by the Father, but the whole world is brought into submission to the Son. Now, do we remember some of those very precious verses from the book of Ephesians where Paul reveals to us some of God's ultimate plan to resolve or to sum up all things in Jesus Christ? To bring that resolution of of bringing all things together in Him? Isn't this a hint of the same thing? Isn't this telling us that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow? It's bringing the whole world together in submission to the Son, not in the sense of universal salvation, 
but in the sense that every personal being will ultimately confess Christ's lordship, either with a very joyful faith or perhaps with resentment and despair, but they will confess the name of Jesus. And he includes those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. Isn't that great? Well, I think that pretty much covers everything. He's conveying the absolute totality of all creation, recognizing the superiority of Jesus Christ. Now, perhaps back in verse 9, where it says that Jesus Christ has the name which is above every name, perhaps that did not convince you of the deity of Jesus Christ. Perhaps back earlier in the chapter when he said that he was in the form of God, and knowing what that ancient Greek word morphe meant, maybe that didn't convince you of the deity of Jesus Christ. Well, maybe I can persuade you right here. Because here, Paul is quoting... Isaiah 45, verse 23. Let me read that to you. Isaiah 45, 23. I have sworn by myself, my, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness. It shall not return that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. Right now, does anybody want to tell me who is speaking in Isaiah 45, 23? It's Yahweh. It's Jehovah, the Lord God. He is speaking. And Paul takes those exact words that Yahweh says of himself and he applies them to Jesus Christ. This shows us Jesus is Yahweh. Uh, let me just remind you of something. And again, when we think of the Trinity, we understand that it is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But those three are one God. I think many times when Christians think of the Trinity, they neglect the idea of the unity of the Godhead. They, they almost think that there's three gods in heaven. And actually we have to understand, there is one God, his name is Yahweh, Jehovah, whichever you would like to say, his name is Yahweh, and that one God is in three persons. So God the Father is Yahweh, God the Son is Yahweh, and God the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. Therefore, you have quotes like this, where Yahweh says that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And then Paul very freely and easily applies that to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Every knee should bow, every tongue should confess. There will be complete submission to Jesus in word and in action, and they will say it. Now, if I still haven't convinced you that Jesus Christ is God, how about this? That Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you understand what that means? Let me put it to you this way. Do you understand what Bible they read in the early church? What Bible they read among Christians and Jews? It was overwhelmingly the Septuagint which was a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures that was actually done some time before the time of Jesus. That was the Bible everybody had. Okay, they had the Septuagint. Do you know with what word the Septuagint translates the ancient Hebrew word or idea or representation, I should actually say, of Yahweh? It translates it with the Greek word kurios, which we translate Lord. So when they would read Yahweh in their Old Testament Bible, they would read Kyrios. And what does Paul say? That Jesus Christ is Kyrios, is Lord. Now we can't escape the significance of this. At a later time in the Roman Empire, all residents of the empire were required to swear an oath, an oath of allegiance to the emperor, and to say the words, Caesar is Lord as they burned a pinch of incense to this image of the emperor. 
The Roman state law saw this as only a display of political allegiance, but, but Christians rightly interpreted it as idolatry. And they refused to participate, often paying with their lives. And Paul says, we know who's Lord. It's not Caesar. Even though I'm going to stand trial before Caesar, Caesar isn't Lord. Caesar may be a high name, but it's not the name above every name. The name which belongs to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. And when we say that, we have to say that there is a sense, and track me on this, there is a sense in which Jesus returned to heaven with more than what he had when he left. You see, not only did he return with his humanity still added to his deity, although it was a resurrected humanity, might I add that? Some people think that Jesus' humanity was like a coat that he put on when he left heaven. Then when he left earth at the ascension, he took the coat off again. No, 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 no. Humanity is forever joined to his deity. That's why the Bible says that there is one mediator between God and man, The man, Christ Jesus. His humanity, although perfected and resurrected, is still joined to his deity. But he also returned with the recognition planted among men of who he was and the worship he deserved. That was unknown before the incarnation and the full revelation of his perfect person and work. Think about it. Before the incarnation, did men know that there was God the Son who loved them in such a way and sacrificed and humbled himself in such a way? But now men know. And when he ascended into heaven, he ascended with at least some men. And I thank God a growing number of men and women all over the earth through the ages that know who he is and who can glorify him for what he has done. That is more than he had when he came down from heaven. And so there it is. Jesus Christ is Lord, as it says at the end of verse 11, to the glory of God the Father. You see, Paul did not give this great description of Jesus and his great work coming down and being exalted simply for the theological education of the Philippians. He gave it to them, number one, to equip them to endure the hardship that they were experiencing right then. Number two, he gave it to them to help them to understand Paul's hardships. And third, he gave it to them to help them practice real Christian unity in the midst of their hard times. You see, this picture of Jesus helped them to understand the ministry of Paul because at this time, the ministry of Paul seemed pretty weak. Here I am, I'm in prison, still. Can't you understand how the Philippians would just be saying, Paul, where's the earthquake? That's what happened last time. And now now they understand that the glory of God can be manifest in very humble circumstances as well. The, The picture helped them to understand the context of God's revelation of power, how God delights to show his power through humble actions. And all of that helped them to have the attitude that would promote unity in the body of Christ. Now, as we close here tonight, I just imagine in my mind uh, a theological expert, a man who knows this uh, passage by heart. He's an expert in Greek and other ancient languages. And he could recite this to you from memory in Greek. And he knows all 
the aspects of it in every way possible. And he's just an expert in it, but he can't get along with anybody. His life is filled with conflict and and division with other people. I would ask you, does that man know the mind of Christ? No, he doesn't. That's what we have to do. Let this mind be in you. This is unity among believers. When we have it, it's like a little piece of heaven on earth to have this attitude among believers. It genuinely is. And that's what we should strive for. And that's what we should thank God for. So let's pray together right now. Lord God, we thank you for this huge, massive picture we have of the glorious work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. I mean, we think of it, Lord, it just can't get any greater to to see Jesus from the throne of heaven down to the lowest rung of the ladder of humiliation and then lifted up in the most glorious exaltation. But Lord, as we see it and we honor it and we worship you and adore you for it, Lord, we also want it to impact our lives, just as Paul wanted it to impact the lives of the Philippians. And yes, have the the effect that it would make us adore you and glorify you. Yes, Lord. But Lord, also make it to where you would use it to change our hearts. So we would just get along with one another and have lowliness of mind and put away all selfish ambition and conceit. I guess, Lord, what we pray here tonight is not that we would just know this passage, but that we'd live it and experience it in the way that we can and to thank you and praise you for the greatness of what God the Son has done for us. We pray it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.